Welcome to Unspoken, the podcast that highlights experiences that are all too common but very rarely discussed. I am Dr. Cloda Campbell, the wellness psychologist, and I feel very passionately about speaking the unspoken to remove the taboo and shame that so often surrounds our experiences and internal worlds. For each episode of Unspoken, I am joined by someone who would like to uncover their unspoken with us in order to help themselves, but also in order to help others. I really hope that you enjoy today's episode and that you take something from it. Today's podcast is very kindly sponsored by Sensate. Do you struggle to relax or to switch out of fight or flight mode? If so, Sensate is your key to calm. Developed by doctors and science-backed, Sensate uses infrasonic sound wave therapy to help your body's nervous system recover from daily stresses and anxiety and to enter into a deep relaxation state. If this is something you would like to incorporate into your life, Sensate have very kindly offered unspoken listeners 10% off when using code CLODA10. Today I am joined by Rachel, who has very bravely agreed to share her unspoken with us. Rachel's unspoken centres around her brother Alan, who very sadly died by suicide in early 2017 while Rachel was seven months pregnant with her third child. During our conversation, Rachel speaks to me about what it was like to lose her much-loved brother in such a traumatic way, the what-if questions that came with losing someone to suicide, and the grief that absolutely consumed her in the aftermath of his death. Rachel is a joy to speak to and to listen to and shares so much wisdom throughout our conversation. You'll laugh and cry alongside her, but you will leave today's conversation with love and hope in your heart. Rachel, welcome to Unspoken. It is so lovely to have you here today to speak about a topic that I have no doubt every single person will relate to in one way or another. So thank you for being here. I'd love to go back to begin today's conversation to hear what life was like growing up with Alan as your brother. Um, This is my favourite part of my relationship with Alan because we grew up together in um, a place in Aylesbury and Talla with my mum and dad and I was the eldest. There's four of us all together but there was myself and then three years later Alan came along so there was three years between the two of us and I was 10 before the next sibling came along. So myself and Alan, we were very similar in personality. We looked alike. We were quiet. um, We had a great childhood. Like my best memories were being down in Wexford in the mobile home, going away on holidays. And we shared a bedroom, which I suppose was kind of unusual for a brother and a sister to share a bedroom. But I was on the top bunk and he was on the bottom. And we used to love musicals. So we'd often be in bed together and I'd be upstairs singing something from The Sound of Music and he'd be down below and my parents would be shouting up saying, will you go to sleep? (laughs) Do you just go to sleep? But we had a really, really great relationship and a great friendship and um, we had a big extended family. So there was a lot of family gatherings and get togethers. And so really that's where my best memories were with them. Obviously then when we we moved house over to Ballantyre when we were teenagers and we sort of drifted apart. And then when he was 24, he headed over to Australia but when I think about Alan it's really the two of us Mm. um, and the things that we did Um, my dad was brilliant at bringing us to time and park and my mom is a stay-at-home mom so there was it was just a lovely place to grow up and lovely uh, friends on the road so it was a a fantastic childhood with the two of us yeah what was it like wishing him well as he headed away when he was 24 
Well, it was it, it kind of came quite quickly because he was working um, for a company called Bizquip and he always had it on his mind that he was going to travel. Uh, one of his favorite movies was Into the Into the Wild. So he sort of started to become um, sort of anti-conformity conformity and as in like uh, things like, you know, going to college or you have to follow the path or you have to get married. He was sort of going against those kind of things. And when he went to Australia, it was very much about being out living in the bush and um, catching fish and going hiking and not being not having a phone. He didn't have a phone for a long time. So he just loved that idea of freedom. So I suppose it was bubbling over as he was sort of hitting his early 20s. But again, I guess I had bought my own house. Um, I was living over in Luke and I didn't see a huge amount of him. So mm-hmm. I wasn't really connected. And you know the way you have people in your family and you don't often see a huge amount of him. So I guess I wasn't that close to him around that, that time. But himself and his girlfriend, Jenny, they were only going out for a short time. They made the decision to go over to Australia and work in Alice Springs. And um, yeah, he absolutely loved it. It was really like his his second home. He absolutely loved it out there. Wow. And did you see much of him, you know, during the years that he was in Australia? Not really. Like I never went out to visit, um, but he himself and Jenny would come home every two years. And I got married in 2010. They came home from that. And um, they what they would do is they would work out there. They worked with the Aborigines. They had a lot of different jobs, but Jenny worked with the Aborigines in um, an art gallery. And then Alan helped to educate them around um, things like managing their money and, um, you know, integrating a little bit into society and things like that. So they would come home with like uh, Aboriginal jewellery and artwork and like great stories and lovely pictures. They used to get involved in all the different activities out there. But what they would do is they would save up a lot of money and then they would travel around different places like India, mostly Asia, because I suppose, you know, America wasn't his scene, that Mm -hmm. sort of materialistic side of things. It was very much going to India, going out to the streets, meeting people, having meals like he really just wanted to find out more about culture. He was very spiritual. Like I, I just would learn a lot from him. And if Alan and Jenny were in people's company, you'd people would look at them. They were very um, interesting to look at. They were kind of hippies. They always had great stories and they just had this vibe that people just wanted to be around them. They were like, you know, I remember one time he came into my school for something and everyone was like, who's that guy? And I said, oh, that's my brother. But he was just a really tall, handsome guy. He was mistaken for Heath Ledger a few times. If you can imagine that. (laughs) Sounds very handsome. Really handsome, but such a quiet kind of a guy that just, um, yeah, just such an interesting guy. And so they would come home and then spend an amount of time at home. And we would, sometimes it would be Christmas and then sometimes it would be summertime and they would do a bit of travel around Ireland and go down to Jenny's family in Mullingar and then head back over to Australia. So it was kind of every two years, but he honestly, he wouldn't have been great at keeping in touch. Mm. So like you mightn't hear from him for three months and then it it would be something like, oh, sure, I was out the outback. You know, I I was sleeping under the stars. And I remember one time saying to them, oh, do you eat meat? And Jenny said, I only eat what I catch. (laughs) It was like, I was like, well, what are you catching? But that was just their, their... their life and it was yeah. their lifestyle so um yeah. but they we had a great time with them when they came home yeah when was your last time to spend time with Alan so the last time I saw him was in 2016 and my granddad had died and they were due to come home anyway and it worked out really well that my granddad had died and then a couple of weeks later they came and um one of my favorite memories with him was going to Siam Thai and Dundrum and we went upstairs myself and my mom it was her birthday and Alan and Jenny And we just had such a great time and we just like talked and because I had two children at that time and 
anytime I would be over with Alan, they, they would take over and it was hard mm-hmm. to have a conversation. So it was just a really nice evening finding out more about him because I didn't really know him that well you know because I wasn't talking to him all the time and we wouldn't have been using WhatsApp or anything like that so um it we when he came home at that time it was May and he spent quite a lot of time with my kids because my mom and dad minded my two younger younger children so he would do a lot of stuff at the back garden he came to my son's birthday party and bought him a bouncing castle and again when they came in everyone was like who's this guy you know and they were just so fun and uh they they took a trip down to Doolan and um so we had a lot of time with them and the last time I saw him was actually up in um, the Merry Ploughboy. We went for a meal up there and that's where we said our goodbyes. And it was always bittersweet to say goodbye. But again, you know, they were doing what they wanted to do and mm. um, they were living the life that they loved. And after that, as far as I remember, they went um, traveling and they ended up then the following February, they went to um, a yoga, like a teacher training thing and they... Um, they had to do, you know, teach classes and eat really healthy food. And they met another group of people. And then um, it was the following month then that he actually died after that. Gosh, little did you know that night, that last meal, that that would be your last time to be with him. Yeah. 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 And he was quiet that night. And I often think, did he know that it was going to be the last time that we were going to see him? You know, I, I, we were up there with my kids. It was a normal night, you know, you're busy and you're trying to look at my children at the time were four and two. Mm. Um, and I do remember him being quiet. And then I said, oh, maybe it's because he's going home. Maybe he just misses us a little bit, or maybe he's a bit nostalgic about, you know, it's, it's lovely to be away, but then to be there in the hope of your family and my family, like I, there's myself, there's Alan, then Barry is 10 years younger than me and Amy and my mom and dad. And what I've realized recently is we all like to talk mm-hmm. <laughs> and we talk very loud. So our home is very like, rah, 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 rah. I think we kind of shout over each other, but our house is always a home full of love and fun. And um, my mom and dad in their house, they have this conservatory and the amount of parties that's been out there. My dad plays the guitar. So it was always a very joyful place and um nothing really had happened up until my granddad dying in 2016 apart from that everything had been pretty rosy to be quite honest with you Mm. you know so we had no reason to think that there was anything out of the way or anything um lingering with him or he was struggling anyway at all you hadn't been worried about him not at all. No, yeah. I mean, my biggest fear was that he was going to go missing in the bush or get bitten by a snake or something mm. like that. But apart from that, he was living the life of his dreams or so we thought um, mm. he was doing exactly what he wanted to do. He was going against like the rules of society that I yeah. suppose I was very much playing by the rules of getting married and buying your house. He was the total opposite, but he wouldn't judge you for doing that. Mm. But just whatever you were supposed to do, he would probably do the opposite. Yeah. So he went to that yoga teacher training in India. Yeah. And what happened from there? So, um, yeah, he as far as we knew, I, at the time I didn't know it was happening because we weren't really in touch. And um, he flew out to Canada then to meet Jenny's sister, um, Emma, out there. And they had three weeks out there. And then the plan was that they were going to come back to Thailand. He absolutely loved Thailand. And they were going to come back to Thailand and stay there for a few days and then go back to Australia. So... Um, we obviously weren't following his path of where he was or whatever. But um, apparently what happened was on the flight back to Canada, from from Canada to Thailand, um, he sort of started being a little bit like 
it was sort of unusual behavior on the flight. He was saying to Jenny, are we going to meet such and such a person? And she was like, no, 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 we're not due to meet them. And Jenny recalls him being just a little bit, just a little bit confused or there was something going on, but she was, she, he was a bit giddy as well. And he was pressing the button for the air hostess to come down. And she was just sort of saying, God, he seems a little bit off, but I don't know. Yeah. So they arrived in the airport and then he disappeared. And, um, you know, Jenny thought he kind of needed a little bit of space and we didn't know that this was happening. And um, apparently then we found out that he checked into a hotel and he was there for a couple of nights. And um, then he went to the airport, back to Bangkok airport. And um, he was apparently seen on CCTV camera rambling around for quite a while and went up the escalator up to the fourth floor and jumped to his death in Bangkok airport. God. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Mm. What's it like to even say that? Um, It's, it still shocks me. I still can't believe it's my brother. Um, And, you know, just before I was coming in here, I was kind of bringing myself back to remember what it was like. Um, I was seven months pregnant at the time on my third son and I really believe that I my brain wouldn't allow me to connect in with what happened because it was too difficult mm. um so I I kind of had to cocoon myself away from it so it took probably about a year for me to actually be able to think through what had happened yeah um because it all happened so fast and um how did you learn that he had died so I was in work I work as a primary school teacher and I was in work at the time and it was a Thursday morning and I was I I had been in a meeting with this guy from corn market and his name was Gary and he was chatting to me about my my um my wages and and pensions and all that kind of thing and I said to him I have to go and have my lunch so I went and had my lunch and I was sitting there it was 20 to 1 and the caretaker said to me Gary is here and I presumed it was the guy from corn market because that was his name and when I went out to the hall it was my husband I just knew you know because Gary should have been at work I just knew something had happened now I my mind didn't go to the kids because I said if there was something wrong with the kids Gary would have gone straight to the hospital but I thought it was my parents and he called me out into the foyer and I sat down on the chair and I was, I had a big, massive bump, you know, so I, I just went into the yoga breathing. I just started breathing. I was like, just breathe, breathe. So you knew he was going to say something to change your life. Yeah, I did. And I'm, after, I, I'm even getting goosebumps. I, I knew, I knew that life would never be the same after what he was going. I just knew it. Yeah. But never in a million years, I think it was going to be Alan. Just didn't cross my mind. So... I sat down on the chair and he said to me, I have some bad news. And he said to me, it's Alan. And I just said, what do you mean? What, what is it? And he said, he, he's after having an accident. And first thing that happened that I thought of that he was working and something he'd fallen or something like that had happened. And he said, he's dead. And I just completely disconnected. It was like him telling me that Alan had, you know, gone to the jungle or, you know, gone to a water park. I just couldn't connect. And I just was like, all right, okay. Um, well, I'm having my lunch. I'm finishing off my lunch. So will I finish that or what do I need to do? So obviously at that stage, Gary was there, the principal was there and there was another lady. So they obviously knew that there was, you know, so they brought me into the the principal's office and we had a bit of privacy there. But again, I just couldn't, I couldn't connect to what what was happening. It was just too much for you. It was just too much. And obviously the brain was like, we're not, we can't deal with this. And obviously then I was thinking of the baby. I was, I just, it was like just sitting here with you. And um, 
So I just said, what are we going to, I just said, I remember saying to Gary, what, what do we do now? And he said, we need to get Amy. So Amy's my sister. So yeah. I said, okay, fair enough. And then I remember, I do remember slow, walking really slow and, and trying to just breathe. And um, we got in the car. I don't even, I don't remember the conversation with Gary. I don't remember whether I was talking to him. I think, I can't remember really what happened. So we had to drive from Tala up to my sister in Dean's Grange and she was in work. And Gary went in to get her and she was on her lunch and we found her. And again, she knew, I remember, she got out of her car and she saw us and she knew as well. And she got into the car with us and we were able to tell her the news. And there was no tears. It was bizarre. There was no tears. And we, on the way home, Amy got a message on her phone from somebody to say, I'm really sorry about your brother. And Amy said, how do people know? Like, we still didn't even really know what happened. Yeah. You'd just been told five minutes before. Yeah, and, and we still... We didn't know anything about the airport. We just knew he died. Get home. That was it. Just get home. Get home to the house in Ballantyre. So how did other people know? So apparently it was reported. It must have been. It was on Thai News, I think. Um, And it must have been picked up by Google that it was an Irish man. He died. I was trying to figure it out. So it must have been the Wednesday night in Thailand. And we got the news the following day. So there was like 12 hours of potential leakage to get out to the news so um yeah so but so what had happened was my mom was at home and the guards came up to the house to tell her and what was awful was my mom was on um like a skype with my other brother having the chats and then she said oh my god barry the guards are at the door and the guards came in and barry was still on the skype and heard it all so it was just uh, like it was traumatic as you can imagine yeah. it's like everyone's worst nightmare isn't it seeing two guards show up at your house yeah yeah and not knowing what they're going to say yeah um so we got to the house and I just remember we got Amy got to the house I can't I don't think my kids were there I think they were over in their grannies and it was just quiet and I often think when you think of like tragedy or accidents you always think of sirens and noise but the house was just quiet and there was a few of my aunties and uncles were there my cousins were there people had started to gather but only very close family and everyone was just sitting around and I just remember like nobody knew what to say Mm. everyone was just and I remember this feeling of like sweat or emotion or it was the strangest feeling that just like I can't even it, it was just feel like a hum of sadness of grief over my body and just this feeling that I just want to go out into the garden and scream my brains out or lie on the ground I had this feeling of lying on the ground but it was I think it was the feeling of like steadying myself or something like that mm. so I went into the house and um I couldn't look at my mom and dad um why I just knew it would kill them like I just knew I knew like my dad was such a proud he was such, like he grew up in a family of nine. He was from Nookrove Avenue. And like, he was such a young man when he like set up his business. He was only 26 and he really, really did his best for us. He worked so hard. He used to go to work during the day and then come home and spend time with us and then go to his workshop in the evening times. So he wouldn't miss time with us. We were, I met a guy that I grew up with and he said, you know, you were the only family on the road that went on the foreign holidays. You know, the way we call it. <laughs> Like we had such an amazing upbringing. My mom, the house was always so clean. There was always lovely food. All the, the big days, like St. Patrick's Day, we'd have the errands. They were just all in as parents. 
And I was like, why our family? Like, why? And my dad, I remember my dad saying, maybe I loved you too much. You know, maybe I did too much for you because we couldn't figure out what we couldn't figure out what had gone wrong. We didn't know what had happened. We didn't know what we didn't know what suicide was. Um, we knew what it was, but we didn't understand anything about it. And um, so yeah. all those questions of how has this happened? Yeah. How is this our reality? How how is this what has happened to Alan? Yeah. Our Alan. And to us, to our family, it was yeah. a sense of how has this happened to us? Um, yeah, I, it was the worst day, as you can imagine. It was just, and then I didn't even know it was suicide at that stage. Mm. So I probably got back to the house probably about half past one and we didn't really know. Things were very sketchy. We didn't know. We knew what the guard said. We didn't know what to do next. We didn't know where he was. We didn't know how it had happened. We just knew that he was dead. We didn't know where Jenny was. And I remember like there was sort of whispers and I was very aware of the baby as well. You know, I was very aware of trying to sort of protect that, like the mama bear sort of protecting her baby. And I remember at one stage saying to my uncle Danny about half past six, I don't know why I remember it was half past six. And I just said to him, was it suicide? They're saying in there it's suicide. How, how could it be suicide? And he said it was suicide. I just... It just didn't make any sense. Yeah. And I... What was it like to to voice those words and for them to be confirmed to you? It, I couldn't take it in. I didn't. It wasn't that I didn't believe it, but I just couldn't. I couldn't take it in. I just... I just couldn't. It, it was... The way the news was coming in, it was like, right, Alan is dead. Then the next one was, it's suicide. It, the layers just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And it was like, when is it ever going to, like, when do I know that this is as bad as it's going to get? Um. So again, like it was just, it, 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 it's numb. That's, that's the feeling that it was just numb. It was just this pain in your heart, a pain in your body. Everything was prickly. Obviously like, you know, your fight or flight, it was, your heart was racing. Um. What did your heart feel like with that pain? Terror, absolute terror. Um, terror of what? Terror of the reality. Terror of what? what's this going to be like? Terror of the rest of our life having to deal with this. Terror of having to be a parent, having to look after my parents. Um, terror of the unknown, terror of the shame around suicide, of what people thought about us. Um, oh my god! So that was present for for you right in those early moments. I think the the early moments was literally, how am I going to get through this day? I don't think I wasn't thinking that far in the early stages. The early yeah. stages was just like minute by minute. Yeah, it was literally minute. Like, okay, right. I think I need to eat now. I think I need to sleep now. Where's the kids? Um, I, you know, it was very, it was survival mode, complete yeah. survival mode. Um, and also when something happens in a family, you usually have your parents there to help you with the kids, but we were all in it. Mm. We were all up. My aunties, my uncles, my in-laws, my husband, everybody was just in this. So those two weeks were the most awful, but also the most incredible two weeks as well, because like 
the power of the human spirit and the things that people did for us in those two weeks were something that changed my life. Um, and I remember like, you know, it's, it's, it's so funny because the family is, you know, everyone has their, their place in their family and then something like that happens and then all bets are off. Mm. So all of a sudden there's this nakedness that I could say anything to you or anything to my dad or it's just, it's, it's almost like you're in a reality and you've been picked up and plonked into a different reality. And you're like, okay, well, how do we not, like, what's the plan? What's the blueprint for this? Had you known anyone who had died through suicide before? No, I didn't. And I really struggled with that because I'm like a real by the book sort of a person. And I wanted to know, what do I do? I kept saying, what do I do? What do I do? What, tell me what to do and I'll do it, but I don't know what to do. So how do mm. I know what to do? And I remember a couple of days after he died, I rang Pieta House and it was a case of what do, what, do, what do I have to do here? And I said, I've got children. I don't know what to say to them. So they actually sent me out a pack. So I, it, when I was doing something, I felt useful. And you have this sort of crazy um, energy that you're sort of like, once this happened, all my pregnancy symptoms went. I didn't feel, apart from having a bump, it was just like, okay, go, you do this. You have to go shop and you have to go here. You're sort of filled with this sort of, false buzz in a sense but it's just this crazy energy we the have to adrenaline. do this the adrenaline we have to go and meet the priest we have to okay all right you do this and you do that and this one's calling in I'll make the sandwiches and it's 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 crazy mm. you know but it, it's in a sense it's giving you some sort of a purpose um so it was very very busy in the early stages but I my my neighbor across the road um Kira her dad had died a few years before that, when she was heavily pregnant on her second daughter, and I remember saying to her, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And she was saying to me, we don't have to do anything. So I started Googling celebrities or, you know, because I didn't know anyone in my circle that had died by suicide. Um, even like, what what words do you use? Did he commit mm. suicide? Did he die by suicide? Did he take his own life? Like, what's the right thing that we say here? Yeah. Um, so even learning that new language yeah. and recently I, I, I always say about Alan, like we lost him to suicide and recently I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with saying we lost him because we, we didn't lose him. Yeah. So again, it's, you know, I had to become comfortable. So the way I thought about things then and in year two or year three, you're constantly evolving with your grief. So between that lunchtime mm -hmm. where Gary came to tell you the news and the two weeks of getting Alan home mm -hmm. did things start to become clearer for you did you start to did the news start to trickle in bit by bit of what had gone on what had happened yeah it was very much a case of I mean at that stage our house in Ballantyre was just like an open door and there was just people calling constantly um there was a lot of people asking questions that I actually didn't really know the answer to and I would have to say I, I don't know I don't know what's happened and I I, I, I do remember my dad and my brother and sister sitting around a lot and sort of trying to piece together things and he was here and then he went there or how did that happen? And so little by little, we were sort of able to piece together what had happened. Um, Jenny came home then on the flight. I think I, I think somebody went out with her to bring her home. Was she worried about him after his unusual behaviour on the plane? She was worried and she knew that there was something up all right. I'm not sure actually how, how she got the news, but when she did get the news, she had to go to the authorities. She had to identify him, <sighs> identify pictures. And um, they weren't nice to her at all. They were really, really cruel to her. The way they spoke to her was really horrendous. And Jenny's a strong lady. She was able for it. But um, 
we were, you know, so, so delighted to get her home because obviously she was with him. Um, I suppose she was the last person to speak with him. There were no answers, um, nothing at all. And eventually then um, we knew where he was. And then there was very much a case of how are we going to get him home? Um, we had to organize the funeral in that time. It's too long, <laughs> you know, it's too long to have to wait. Um, we had people call into the house. Um, people were amazing. Um, they brought food. They cooked for us. They cleaned the house. Uh, they came and they they talked. People came with a lot of questions. Some questions were very inappropriate. Um, what types it, of questions? Just going into a lot of detail about how he died, um, which was difficult to have to keep telling the story over and over again. Um, people would say things like, you'll never get over this. I remember somebody saying, um, you think the first year is bad, wait until the second year. So I just remember feeling not ter- like terrified of the future, like just absolutely terrified. Mm. Uh, you know, I heard about another story about a woman who lost her son to suicide and she didn't leave the sitting room for something like three years. So you're hearing all these stories and it's a case of which one am I going to be? Like you kind of, you feel so out of control and chaotic that you're saying, I don't know which one I'm going to be. Mm. Am I going to turn to drink? Am I going to um, not be a good parent? Am I going to, and I also had this fear that somebody else was going to die. Like I, I remember driving over and back at the M50 from Ballantyre over to Lucan and I kept thinking I'm probably going to be killed in a car accident because again, the unimaginable, the unimaginable had happened. So why not something else? Like why not somebody else die? Or if our, my brother or sister was going anywhere and my dad or my mom, we'd have to say, are, are you okay? Like we'd say it. Are you okay? Are you like, you're not going to take your own life. We'd say those words. Like, are you okay? Like you need to be on your phone. You, we need to be able to check in with you if you go somewhere. Yeah. Um. So we just, I remember another time, Adam, my son, he was, he had like a rash on him and I thought, oh, he's meningitis, he's probably going to die. So it was just your world is thrown into absolute chaos, all while still cooking dinners and still going shopping. And so it was the most surreal time in my life. But I do remember about three days in, myself and dad would be very, I'm very close with all my family, but myself and my dad would have a great relationship. And dad said to me, you know, people say like, it'll take 10 years to get over this. He said, we're not doing that. He said, I'm not doing it. He said, you know, Alan was 32 when he died. He made a decision. And we're not going to spend the next 10 years grieving that. And it was very much like that sentence changed the, how my life is now. It absolutely changed it because my dad gave us permission, even though he'd lost a son three days before, he gave us permission to live. Wow. Um, so that was what, when I mean that it was a horrendous couple of weeks, it was also, there were so many powerful moments. There was people that um, we didn't even know that took care of us. Like we were over in my house one of the days, we had to get away from Lucan because, or get away from Ballantyre to plan the funeral because the door was, you know, there was callers all of the time and we were planning the funeral out there. And it's crazy because we were laughing and joking and then we were crying and then we were arguing and he doesn't like this song and I didn't know. So it, it's just chaotic. It reminds me in a sense of like an Italian family all sitting around a big lasagna. Happiness and hurt 
belong together in the same room. But, um, you, you know, you were constantly up and down all the time. And the grief was so unpredictable. It was, I, I can only describe the grief like the sea, like water. And it was like this vision I had because, you know, there was a lot of alcohol over that time as well, because Irish funerals, as we do, but I didn't, wasn't drinking because I was pregnant, which was such a gift, another incredible gift because I felt a little bit more steady. But I just had this vision of um, on holidays in the, the little water parks, they have this big bucket and it fills with water and then it tips over. And that was like the grief. You you were fine and then you'd feel it filling and you, it would get to your throat and you'd be like, oh, I feel like I, I just need to explode. And you'd go somewhere and you'd heave, like, like heave with the tears and with the pain and it would come pouring out of you. And then you'd say, I'm grand now, <laughs> you know, anyway, what's for dinner? Mm. And you'd go back into it. But I, because I had the kids, I, I had to sort of keep it together for them. And I used to give myself an hour in the evening. And I said to myself, well, hold it together in front of them. But between nine and 10, we're going to light some candles. We're going to turn on some music. I couldn't even look at his photograph. Like it took me at least a year to be able to look at a photograph of him. And uh, I would, for that hour, I would just roar with the tears and roar with the pain and allowed myself and it was just a release now that book is still there mm. but it doesn't need to be emptied like in the early days it needed to be emptied nine or ten times a day now yeah. it needs to be emptied like it could be every six weeks it could be every four weeks it could be so it's always there mm. and it's like you know I was trying to think because people don't understand grief that People who haven't been through it don't and then the people who came in were really good they're people who've lost people and they mm. just say talk to me or they just say I don't know what to say mm. and because people would have said things like oh but you're you'll be grand because you know you've Gary and you've got the kids and you know you've got this gorgeous baby and they were trying to help me but it didn't mm. you know I just want just let me be sad like let me be angry mm. let me be um pissed off mm. I just wanted to be whatever and I didn't even know I didn't even know what a lot of the feelings were at the time Tell me about the anger that was coming up for you. Um, the anger came a bit afterwards because I think, I suppose, numbness was the feeling, heartbroken, um, pain, like a, a physical pain. Like it was like it, it was, you know, I remember trying to get out of the bed, like just like just get a foot onto the ground. Um, that pain and the prickly feeling in your body. It's like just that you, you're never you're always kind of sweaty. You were always your heart was beating fast. But I remember going down to my Nana and I couldn't talk to my parents about it after. Like, I just couldn't because it was just, it was too much. Um, I couldn't deal with their pain. And again, you know, I knew my mother had lost a son. My dad had lost a son. But I had forgotten that I'd lost a brother because I was trying to mind everybody, being mm -hmm. the eldest, kind of the fixer. And so I, I, I just couldn't, I didn't know how to talk to them about it. But I talked to my Nana about it. And I said to her one time, do you ever feel angry? And Alan, so obviously I, I was feeling it because I asked her and she said, no, should I? I could never, could never feel angry at him. I, how could you feel angry at him? And I said to myself, yeah, I can't feel angry at him. No, no, I don't. So I, I just part it. Mm. But um, the anger only came quite recently. Um, it would be angry with things like, well, it's all right for you. Like you headed off and we're left with this mess of life. You know, it must be easy to head off and to just say, oh, I've had enough of this. But we had to deal with the shattered family that was left behind. And, mm. um, you know, I like I'm, I'm massively into self-care and coaching and all that kind of stuff. But 
I have to do that stuff to keep myself well. So I feel like I can't live my life like a normal. Well, it's normal for me. Mm. But when something like that happens, there's so much more that goes on in the background in order to keep yourself buoyant. Things like, you know, staying away from alcohol in the early days. I did a massive amount of journaling. I did like I, I have this lovely diary and I kept a gratitude diary. And over the whole year of 2017, I only missed nine days. So it was like, even though this day is horrific, I actually had a nice coffee. Mm. I felt the baby kick. My friend texted and said, you're doing amazing. There was looking for the little tiny moments, even in the horrendous grief. And it was that that kept me going. I had so much empathy for him. I came to the agreement that he wasn't in his right mind to do it. He had people that he could have helped. Um, He had a great life. Something went wrong, like something in his brain snapped or broke. He Nobody would do what he did unless something had gone seriously wrong. So I realized it's okay to be angry. And I give out to him sometimes. I'm like, you fecker, you know, we're here. But um, yeah, I I allow the anger in now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we talk about all the stages of grief, the anger, the denial, the, 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 the bargaining and the acceptance. And that doesn't happen in a linear fashion like it it comes and goes and sometimes you might be in a certain stage you might be in denial for quite a long time which I was I remember figuring out that acceptance was sort of one of the last stages and I said to myself I'll never accept this I'll never ever accept this this shouldn't have happened and you'd wake up every morning and you'd have that feeling on your heart like this like a concrete block on your chest and you say god how am I going to get through another day like how am I going to do this And you kept wanting to go back. It shouldn't have happened. This isn't the way my life is meant to be. So, um, yeah, so the anger was uh, there lingering. But I suppose it was only after a certain amount of time that you did feel like I'm allowed. Mm. And I do feel I'm at a place of acceptance now as well. I know he's gone. I know he's he's not coming back. I accept what happened. and then I, there's a part of me that doesn't, it, it just, I feel like it was a decision that he made. Um, and we had to pick up the pieces afterwards and figure out how to adapt because you never get over it. It'll never be gone. But to describe it to someone who hasn't experienced a grief um, as traumatic or any grief it's almost like if you had an accident and maybe you lost your leg and all of a sudden the first day you're like, how am I ever going to cope with this? How am I going to do anything? How am I going to have independence? And little by little you adapt and you find different ways and, you know, you try new things or people suggest things. And it's the same with the grief that it'll never go. And I don't ever want it to go away because I feel like if I forget about him or if I stop the tears, he'll be forgotten about. So grief is it's so unpredictable. It's mm-hmm. it can it's not necessarily on anniversaries. It can be. It's not on birthdays, but it can be like I, I like even walking up today through town, I said, God, he doesn't get to see this. Or a happy song. It's not necessarily a sad song. It's a happy song that would catch you. Like imagine that he should be at a concert or sitting on the beach, or he doesn't get to do this anymore. Um, and there's a huge sadness over that from like the 32 is so young. Yeah. You speak so beautifully about Alan and so much of what you say I'm relating to having lost my dad Mm. in different circumstances. But, you know, grief is universal. Mm. 
What advice would you give to someone listening who has just lost somebody they love, particularly if it's through suicide? It's okay to be happy. Mm. Don't feel guilty about living your life. You're not forgetting them. Yeah. You know, you're not leaving them behind. And I remember three weeks after Alan died and I was up in a place called St. Catherine's Park and there was a lovely playground up there and Adam and Ryan were playing and where they were playing was a little bit dangerous. And I was sitting there and I said to myself, oh, boys, come back. And I just felt Alan on my shoulder. He just said, let them go, let them go, let them go, let them go. So I said, "Okay, boys, off you go. And it was like Alan sort of saying, let them have the adventures. So how I see it now is, is that Alan is with me all the time. He pushes me, he gives out to me and he only gives out to me for being too harsh on myself. But allowing yourself to have this life, because ultimately I can meet Alan when I'm 70 or 80 or 90 years of age when I when I die myself. And I could say to Alan, you know, what did you think about the life I lived? Mm -hmm. And the worst thing that could happen was that he was to say to me, Rachel, I left the world, but you didn't have to. You didn't have to carry this grief. You didn't have to be sad for the rest of your life. You didn't have to not be there for the kids because of me. I chose this. Mm. So I want to meet Alan and him say, I'm so proud of you. You know, you've you've went on to do wonderful things. You brought so much joy into people's lives. And, you know, you lived a life of love and joy. Well, Rachel, it has been so lovely to have you here and to hear about Alan and your childhood together and the beauty that came in those dark moments for you. Thank you so much for sharing your unspoken with us. I have no doubt that your unspoken will help many people. Thank you. I am asked every single day how to survive grief. People send me messages like, I'm finding it so hard to move on or I'm consumed by my grief, what can I do? Often when in the depths of grief, people want a way out. Whether that grief is related to a loved one's death, a relationship breakup, or the loss of something precious to you, such as an assumptive world you believed you were a part of or a much longed for baby, the pain of grief can feel unbearable. It's suffocating, it's all consuming, it feels like it's never ending. It can also be incredibly debilitating and feel so hard to do the things you previously took for granted. Even things such as getting up in the morning, eating, sharing. Life can feel so hard. So when I'm asked, I'm consumed by grief, what can I do? I get it. I really do. When my dad died, I felt like a part of me had died with him. It hurt me so much that the world continued without him. I just couldn't comprehend it. I fell apart in his loss and felt so alone and so heartbroken. I felt angry at the people in my life who were going on holidays, celebrating birthdays, continuing to live their best lives. In that time, I wanted to numb my grief. I wanted to make it go away. I wanted to wake up and realise it had all been a nightmare, not my reality. But unfortunately, as much as I wished to do that, I couldn't. And unfortunately, for those of you listening deep in the throes of grief, neither can you. I wish I had a different answer for you and for all the messages I receive from heartbroken people whose lives have fallen apart. I wish I could wrap you up and take away your pain and take away my pain too. But sadly, I can't, no matter how much I want to. You see, we all experience grief for a reason. Grief is a form of learning and one that teaches us how to be in the world without someone or something that we love. 
adjusting to the fact that we'll never again spend time with our loved one or a dream we once held in our heart can be incredibly painful. This adjustment and acceptance takes time and involves changes in our brain. For example, when we have the experience of being in a relationship, the sense of who we are is wrapped up with that other person. The word sibling, the word partner, the word daughter in my case, implies two people. And so when that other person is gone, we suddenly have to learn a totally new way of operating in the world. The we is as important as the you and me, and our brain really does need to encode that. This takes time. So when people say, I feel like I've lost a part of myself, this is for good reason. Of course they feel this way. Grief also helps us to work through the intense emotions we experience in the aftermath of our loss. The heartbreak, the disbelief, the denial, the shock, the sadness, the anger, the shame, the guilt. The wide myriad of emotions that we all experience and that are all absolutely normal. So if you have or are currently experiencing any of these emotions, please know that you are not alone and that you're going through the shared human experience that is grief. The shared human experience that has no rules or rights or wrongs. So grieve exactly as you are. Allow yourself this small mercy without putting pressure on yourself to be or feel any other way than you currently are. Not just that, but it is actually so important for us to sit in our grief and acknowledge how we are feeling, for this allows us to work through and release the emotional energy that our grief carries. If we can allow these emotions to come when they arise, rather than pushing them down or numbing them with food or alcohol or any number of things, we allow ourselves to heal. We heal through feeling and releasing. So feeling the sadness, anger or guilt or whatever emotion that arises for us, And then working through it so that we can release it and let it go. A really helpful way to do this is through expressing it. Perhaps by talking about it, writing about it, or crying and letting your tears flow. These actions allow us to release our grief and the associated emotions. This is healing. This is caring for ourselves when in the depths of heartbreak. In terms of my advice for those of you currently in these depths... Allow yourself to feel however you are feeling and please, please, please look after yourself in that. Be gentle with yourself. Take the pressure off. You don't have to return to normal life within a certain timeline. You don't have to show up as the person you previously were. You don't have to do anything but care for and love yourself as you journey through this process. So take it day by day or hour by hour And if you are struggling, please remember that your struggle is normal, valid and allowed. You are struggling because you are human. You are struggling because you have lost someone or something very precious to you. Allow yourself to struggle and to share yourself with love and patience while you do. Thank you so much for listening to Unspoken with me, Dr. Clodagh Campbell, the wellness psychologist. Be sure to like, subscribe and follow me at The Wellness Psychologist on Instagram if you would like to hear more. If you identified with this topic, make sure to check out the show notes where I have listed related resources for you. I hope you find them beneficial.